This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. I'm realizing that uh, a huge part of me might spend this whole time with you in tears not the plan. And I'm not trying to manipulate anybody with my tears. (laughs) Um, But it's just this uh, sort of uprising that I'm feeling right now. Yeah. And it's interesting being a teacher who suddenly has to be like on, right? Okay, I'm going to give a talk. And there's all these other experiences running through my body and my mind and my heart. And, you know, I've been thinking about y'all for, uh, you know, months. And every time I had a thought about compassion, which is what I'm going to talk about today, I wrote it down. And so my talk is compiled of thousands of pieces of little paper, (laughs) little paper that came from hikes, little paper that that came from conversations, little pieces of paper that came from reading the news, little pieces of paper, you know, just all these little pieces of paper. And what I'd mostly like to be doing is to be in conversation with you. I don't really prefer this talking at you thing, but here we are. I also have so much respect for all of the different um, experiences that are in this room. You know, we get called people of color. And there's so much there. We all have so many causes and conditions and experiences and realities. And uh, I will do the best I can to speak to the ears of all. And if I miss anybody, um, I'm I'm asking for forgiveness in advance. And I'm open to feedback. (laughs) So there's that. Yeah, so I want to talk about compassion. And I want to first sort of ground it in this, the Brahma Viharas, these heart practices, these divine abodes, these resting places, that term Brahma Vihara translated into the heart's resting place, abodes, homes. 
divine. Being a Dharma teacher, I fly a lot. And I feel sometimes, you know, when the, the hostess of the airline is telling you, you better pay attention because if this plane goes down, you better know where the airbag is. You better know where the oxygen is, right? They're telling you your life-saving tools, and that's when we check out. That's when we're like, headphones on, book, light, sleep, right? <laughs> and so sometimes I feel like as a Dharma teacher, like, we've, we've got some life-saving devices here, people. <laughs> and we have to be told over and over again, because I still, I've probably flown a thousand times, and I, I don't know where the life vest is. I'm pretty sure it's under the seat, but I'm not positive, <laughs> right? <laughs> So that's what the Dharma feels like sometimes. We can be we can be experienced practitioners and say, oh, I've heard this. I'm going to check out, right? But have you heard it? Have we heard it enough to stop suffering? Hmm. Not quite. <laughs> Not quite. We might have heard it, but have we heard it? And then for people who are learning it, it might sound cultish. <laughs> it might sound weird. You know, but just taking in what feels true and right to you. I might say a thousand things right now and you might hear one and that's enough. That's okay. So just take in what works. What's here? What's true? What's real? What, what can I see when I just pay attention to my breath as it arises and passes? What can I pay attention to as I watch my mind states and notice that something I was thinking about changes, shifts? When we look at our practice, the wisdom parts of our practices, we're looking at the truth of, the truth of reality. We're getting a foundation. We're looking at and seeing clearly. How do we feel stable? Can I get this body calm? Can I at least decharge, discharge all that's been going on out there for a few moments so that the clouds can part and I can see me? I can see my mind. I can see my heart. I can take away the devices. I can be fed. I can listen to the schedule, right? So we sit here. And we pay attention to simply what arises. What's arising for me right now? And we can often, and some of you reported it today, get to this place of tranquility, this place of calm, this place of where the disruption is a lot less, where the constant chatter dissipates. The mind slows down so that we can engage with some depth of experience that might actually feel uncomfortable. We spend a lot of time moving fast. We spend a lot of time busy. Favorite term. We spend a lot of time moving, fixing, changing, amending, right? And what that does is it helps us avoid some of the depths of our real pain, of our sorrow, the depths of somebody else's pain and sorrow. 
Because if we're fixing ourselves, or we're fixing somebody else, or we're fixing a society or a situation, we're good, right? Because there's control. I got this. We're busy. But then we do something like what we're doing here. We slow down. We take it in. We stop. We get rid of the distractions. And then what? Uh-oh. Right? A little bit of that experience of, you know, where are we day two and a half? Something like that. So we might still be in the watching the busyness, feeling the busyness in our nervous systems. But at the same time, some of the ouch is starting to arise. Some of the tears, the ache, the unfamiliarity, the questioning. Would that be fair to say? I don't know. Like I said, I know I'm talking to a bunch of different ears here and and a lot of different ways of being. But I want to I want to tell you that compassion is the compadre to wisdom. We need we need both. The heart that only has compassion can get really exhausted. The heart of compassion, if um, out of balance, can lean towards pity, right? It can lean towards this experience of, you know, I was thinking today, it's like, yeah, compassion, the heart has all the space it needs for compassion, but the ego doesn't, right? When we get into the ego aspects of what we think is compassion, that gets exhausted. So I want to talk a little bit about what compassion is. I'm not going to talk so much about wisdom, but the the aspects of grounding, settling, stabilizing, knowing, caretaking yourself, crucial. Crucial to true compassion. Like I said, compassion out of balance looks like pity or shaming or, you know, that aspect. It looks like exhaustion. It looks like sorrow. And when I say true compassion, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm, I, I looked up the etymology of compassion and, you know, if I asked five of you what you say compassion is or what you think compassion is, I might have five different answers. And that's okay. That's totally okay. Your version of compassion, fine. The Buddhist version of compassion actually can hold all the pains and sorrows. Imagine. And that's not just a, um, you know, I'm a skeptic, right? So I'm I'm super skeptical. I'm not going to believe you because you told me. I'm not going to believe any teacher, preacher, anybody because they told me. I need to find it out for myself. I need to see it. And so I've watched myself, I've watched myself get exhausted by what I thought was compassion. I, I used to work at a, um, a boys camp called Camp Gonzales in, in, um, in the LA area. They actually, they had prime property in Malibu and it was this beautiful campus basically on the beach in Malibu. Um, and so these boys, there were this juxtaposition of these boys who were being housed there 
right? Behind these huge walls and this beautiful property. And I, I went there for almost five years. And, um, you know, I got to a point where I just was like, <laughs> what I want to say, I'm not going to say, but I just started to not like those kids. I was like, <laughs> they have no idea that I drive almost two hours to them, almost two hours back. My kids have to make their own dinner. And this was my when my kids were little. I'm not getting paid for this, right? And I'm like, they don't appreciate me enough. Like, I really needed them to appreciate me. And every time I was driving there, two hours of traffic, I was like, I'm quitting to, I, I'm going to call the organization that, you know, hi, you know, that gets me here and I'm quitting. I'm quitting. I'm quitting. I did that 22 times in my mind. But then every time I got there and they were smiling and they, they called me meditation lady and they said, and they, not only did they call me meditation lady, but they asked me how my day was. I can't quit. <laughs> I so want to quit and I can't. So, you know, the, the compassion starts to, my compassion got out of balance, right? Because I was like, my ego, my ego got all involved. Do they know who I am? <laughs> Do they know who they have driving? And my kid, you know, the whole story I had going. That wasn't compassion. It was a chore. It was a duty. And it looked really good on my resume. I work with boys in Camp Gonzales, right? Like, ego. But it was the compassion when I saw their smiles. I could hold them. I could hold them for hours. No problem. So I want to I want to talk about a few different layers. Um, that we all experience, you know, in, in around compassion. Um, there's the idea of self-compassion. When do we let that in? How do we let that in? You know, for some of us, it means um, pulling back. For some of us, it means sitting down instead of standing up. Right? We can get so used to standing up and cheering for and pushing forward and rooting on. And sometimes self-compassion means, you know, I'm going to take a little break. My body's tired. My heart's tired. My mind's tired. I need to not do this right now. So sometimes... That's what self-compassion looks like. And sometimes self-compassion means moving forward. Sometimes there's this urgency that arises and we've been, we're so shut down, we don't know how to, how to take care of others. So sometimes it means taking that really awkward step and trying. I don't know how to do this, but I want to and I'm going to try anyway, right? So sometimes self-compassion means moving forward. When I think about my physical care, you know, I'm, I'm that middle-aged woman who, I don't, I don't often take care of myself. 
I used to take really good care of myself when I was younger and didn't need it as much. It's funny. Like I think about the weirdness of that, but now that I really need it more, I'm doing it less because there's that I'm caring for others thing that's, that's taken precedence. Um, but that can tip over into I'm a martyr, right? That can tip over into something that's really unhealthy and unwholesome. So when to pull, when to move forward, when to pull back, when to know how to do that. One of the things I notice in a really big way is around self-compassion is when I have an experience, an emotion, a thought that I don't like, that I don't want to be there, how I reject myself, how we can abandon ourselves, how we can do exactly the thing that we hope other people don't do to us, and we do it to ourselves, right? Our imperfections, our unworthiness, our shame, our personal shame, all the ways that you know, I said to a group today, if I probably, there are times that I'm talking to myself in ways that I would never let a friend talk to me. I would not have a friend like me, <laughs> you know, that my, that mind, where's the, where's the compassion? Where's that, that, oh, dear heart, you know, like, So when I'm looking at this idea of self-compassion and how I might abandon myself, how we can abandon ourselves, I often like to have that image of a child. Like, would you tell a child? Well, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But that whole, like, shaming, stop crying, shut up, be quiet, sit in the corner way, we can do that to ourselves. Right. So we'll tell ourselves we're doing it wrong somehow, because if I was doing it right, it would be peaceful. It'd be nice. So what's it like if we actually pull ourselves in and say, yeah, right now, right now, my body's uncomfortable. My heart's uncomfortable. My mind's uncomfortable. And I'm going to care about you anyway. I'm going to hold you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to tell you you're doing it wrong. I've heard that before. I'm going to hold you. Self-compassion. How can I hold myself? How can you hold yourself? Um, When I was young, I'm going to tell you a little story about myself. Um, I would say probably up until I was about 25, I had a lot of racial confusion, a lot, because I had a mother who was born in 1931 in Harlem, and my mother's very light-skinned. She has green eyes, light skin, light hair, um, black family, (laughs) and she, you know, she was born during segregation. Jim Crow South, although she wasn't in the South, but experiencing the impacts of that. And um, she, at one point in her life, in her early 20s, because she was really mistreated by the local kids, rocks were thrown at her because she was so light-skinned, right? We know know this, right? There's a lot of (laughs) interracial hatred. 
And so she was, she was really chopped down by, by the kids in her neighborhood, the black kids in her neighborhood. So she decided because she was so light skinned and green eyed and light haired that she was going to pass. That was what many people did then. So in the fifties, um, early sixties, went to Los Angeles and said, I am Portuguese. That's what she decided to be, Portuguese. And so my, she married a Sicilian man, my father. And in 1965, which is the year I was born, miscegeny laws were still in effect in many states. So they went and lived in Europe for a year. So they took a ship to Europe, lived there for a year. She was seven months pregnant with me, came back alone, not with my father, so that they would legally be okay. Right. And then I was, I was born here because they wanted me to have a passport, uh, my legal status to be in this country. But she didn't want the people to know that she was with a white man. So then I was born. Um, but the unfortunate thing about it is my mom kept going with that story. You know, she kept going with the story of she was Portuguese and I had a Sicilian father and he has nappy hair and full lips. And, you know, the, the Sicilians in Italy are the, are the, the N-words of of Italy, right? So she pushed off all of my everything onto him. And uh, so for the first 15 years of my life, the fact that I was born of a heritage of oppression was never brought up. Never, not once. I knew she would go to Harlem and visit my grandparents once a year, but I didn't know anything about that then. Yeah. So at 15, she lies, my brother and I, who had been teased our whole lives, like <laughs> we'd been teased our whole lives. She lies us down and tells us, I need to tell you something. You're black. <laughs> and we're like, no shit. My brother and I just look at each other like, who is she? You know? The world has been reflecting this to us in our upper middle class white neighborhoods for 15 years, you know? So that happened. And then I went, yay, free to be me, you know? And, and just the, the floodgates opened and, and it was just, there wasn't enough literature, there wasn't enough music, there wasn't enough, you know, history that I could read to satiate this sudden feeling of, I get it, you know. But there was still a lot of racial confusion for me. And, I, you know, I don't know about, you know, the mixed race people in this room, but, you know, I, I bring this up in the compassion talk for a reason, because I, I just like, you know, I had a guy break up with me because I wasn't black enough. And then, you know, I had a guy break up with me because my ass was too big. Right? We're talking shallow, but it's real. It's true. Right? So that wasn't my only racial confusion, like my boyfriends that broke up with me. But, <laughs> but there was... <laughs> there was, <laughs> you know, there's the many ways that I just, I didn't know where I, I should be. I didn't feel seen. I loved when the color of water came out. I was like, thank you. 
You know, that was one of the first books I talked about that. I needed to hear that. So I had a heart, my, my, the, I, that my heart didn't know what to align with. It didn't know where to go. It didn't know what to be forgiving of. It didn't know what to accept. It didn't know what to reject, right? Everywhere I went, I was, we know, we know this code switch. We know how we, how we walk in a room and need to change. We know that. What we need to put down, where we need to be quiet. Where, you know, I was always too loud. I was all of that. All that stuff. But the sad part was I wanted other people to know me and accept me and see me, but I, I didn't. I couldn't. I didn't know how. I was too confused. So I spent a lot of time working on that. That was actually what introduced me to, to spiritual practice. And, you know, first it wasn't Buddhism. It was other things. But really just engaging with what is this being how do, how, and the world and how do we associate with each other? Yeah. I had, I, I'm going to tell you a teeny little story real quick about, and it might be a little weird to some of you, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm okay being weird. Um, one of my first compassionate moments around race for me, you know, and I might ask you to reflect a little, like, what are your first moments of compassion for yourself, self-compassion? was I was working with a healer because I, I was working on every level. I was seeing psychotherapists. I was seeing healers. I was going to shamans. I was doing all kinds of ceremony. I was in sweat lodges. I was doing it all because I was just trying to figure out this mechanism, right? And one of the things that came up is I kept having this ovarian pain, like this really intense ovarian pain a lot on my right ovary. And then so I'm working with this healer and telling her about it. And where she said, well, write a story about it. Write a story. Just... I don't, you know, because there was no pathology to it. I, I got it ultrasounded and everything was fine, but it was there. It was real. And she said, well, write about it. And I said, well, I think it's trying to talk to me. My body's speaking to me and I don't know what it's saying. So I started writing and it was just one of those journaling, you know, stream of consciousness moments. And this, this woman named Sadie started speaking to me. So Sadie starts speaking to me. Sadie lives in my right ovary. It's okay if this is weird. Sadie lives in my right ovary. And Sadie was a breeder. She was a breeder. And Sadie was really mad at me. And Sadie needed to talk. Sadie needed to be seen. Because in my early years, in my younger years, I was promiscuous. I was like, I gave my body freely, sexually, because I liked it. But I also wanted to be liked. So I, I, I engaged in a lot of sexual activity with strange, you know, I will say the word strangers, people I didn't know it was what I did. So I got this raging mad Sadie and she just said, how dare you do this to us? You're supposed to know better. We're past that. And so Sadie, when I pictured Sadie, Sadie, Sadie wore white and Sadie lived in a barn and Sadie was shackled to a chair and Sadie only got to come out for breeding. And when I finally saw Sadie, when I finally acknowledged Sadie and apologized to Sadie and actually changed my behaviors, that pain went away. Was that too weird? <laughs> 
that was a moment of compassion that I had for myself and for my conditioning and my genealogy and my heritage and my ancestors and all the ways that, you know, our actions matter. My actions mattered. My actions mattered to Sadie and to my female ancestors because they spoke to me a lot within that year. They had a lot to tell me. <laughs> and I shaped up. But they had my back, you know? I was, I felt very held. So that was compassion. Compassion was strength. Compassion was being held. And doing that for ourselves is important. And this is one of the most important reasons. This is one of the reasons I don't leave the kids that I work with. is because I cannot tell them that their external circumstances are going to be okay. I can't tell them that and not be lying. What I can tell them is that let's work on this because nobody can take this from you. It doesn't even, you could be in the street bleeding and nobody can take that from you, right? This, no matter where you are. So that's this, this practice of self-compassion. It's not going anywhere. Okay, then we look at this idea of um, compassion, people close to us, which sometimes are the hardest. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I realized how not compassionate I was when I was like, oh yeah, now I feel compassionate because you agree with me. <laughs> You finally get it. Ah, oh, yeah, I'm sorry you're in pain. <laughs> right? But when there was an edge, like when we were not in sync, I couldn't feel compassionate. I needed them first to succumb to my idea of how they should act. Then I'll feel compassionate to you, towards you, with you. So what blocks compassion for another? What blocks our compassion for another? You know, fear? An agenda? I've got to get this done. You have to understand I'm in a rush, right? Whatever, whatever our thing is. Control. You know, sometimes when somebody else is feeling a lot of pain or is just disconnected with the groove we're in, it's inconvenient. It's not the right time. That blocks compassion, right? If only you acted like this, then I could love you more. And I could show up for you, but you're misbehaving, so... <laughs> not working right now. I mean, we do that to ourselves too. So looking at the looking at those layers, our own grief blocks compassion. Our own joy blocks compassion. You know, we're like, yay, my life's so good. <laughs> I'm happy. I have everything I want. Yeah, you know, and, the, and there's this way that we can just not see <laughs> anything else. And again, I'm not saying everybody. I'm just saying, I'm just giving you lots of choices to see ourselves, to see yourself. 
you know, and there's, and there's this interesting way that, you know, I think if I took a vote in here, who likes to feel connected to people? Anybody? Sometimes <laughs> there's a lot of this. Okay. So for the most part, connection, honest connection, real connection. We at least want to be seen. I know I want to be seen. Yeah, when we really get down to it, that's this. We're like, yeah, but, <laughs> right? <laughs> if only it goes the way I want it to go. Then, yeah, I want to get super close. <laughs> I want to feel real connected. And so what compassion with another, it, it, it asks us to be vulnerable. It asks us to give up control. It asks us to engage in another person's conditioning and reality that maybe we don't agree with. And maybe it doesn't even work for us. And what does that look like? So I am going to read this now because I, I really like this uh, Claudia Rankine poem. It's a tiny bit long, but I think it it puts us because see with compassion when I when I think of it, you know, it's like we have to get super close to it. We can't have a distance. You know, compassion from a distance has a different thing. You know, we we can mentally we can have the mental exercise of compassion, you know, because that's like Oh yeah, I don't like injustice. That's compassion. I don't like it when people aren't treated well, right? We we can understand it, but it also it also begs for a closeness. It begs for the heart to get engaged and it begs for the heart to be involved. So this is an excerpt from Citizen, which I, hi I highly recommend if you don't have it already. On the train, the woman standing makes you understand there are no seats available. And in fact, there is one. Is the woman getting off at the next stop? No. She would rather stand all the way to Union Station. The space next to the man is the pause in a conversation you are suddenly rushing to fill. You step quickly over the woman's fear, a fear she shares. You let her have it. The man doesn't acknowledge you as you sit down because the man knows more about the unoccupied seat than you do. For him, you imagine, it is more like breath than wonder. He has had to think about it so much, you wouldn't call it a thought. When another passenger leaves his seat and the standing woman sits, you glance over at the man. He is gazing out the window into what looks like darkness. You sit next to the man on the train, bus, in the plane, waiting room, anywhere he could be forsaken. You put your body there in proximity to, adjacent to, alongside, with. You don't speak unless you are spoken to, and your body speaks to the space you fill, and you keep trying to fill it, except the space belongs to the body of the man next to you, not to you. Where he goes, the space follows him. If the man left his seat before Union Station, you would simply be a person in a seat on the train. You would cease to struggle against the unoccupied seat when, where, why this space won't lose its meaning. You imagine if the man spoke to you, he would say, it's okay, it's okay, you don't need to sit here. You don't need to sit 
and you sit and look past him into the darkness the train is moving through, a tunnel. All the while, the darkness allows you to look at him. Does he feel you looking at him? You suspect so. What does suspicion mean? What does suspicion do? The soft gray green of your cotton coat touches the sleeve of him. You are shoulder to shoulder, though standing, you could feel shadowed. You sit to repair whom, who? You erase that thought, and it might be too late for that. It might forever be too late or too early. The train moves too fast for your eyes to adjust to anything beyond the man, the window, the tiled tunnel, its slick darkness. Occasionally, a white light flickers by like a displaced sound. From across the aisle, tracks room, harbor, world, a woman asks a man in the rows ahead if he would mind switching seats. She wishes to sit with her daughter or son. You hear, but you don't hear. You can't see. It's the man next to you, turns to you. And as if from inside your own head, you agree that if anyone asks you to move, you'll tell them we are traveling as a family. Right. Spoken, the unspoken, the held, the unheld. Do I, don't I? And compassion can feel like that. It's hard to land on. It's hard to call it. So every time I come to New England, you know, have you seen these stone walls? The hand-built stone walls? There's hundreds of thousands of miles of these stone walls all over New England. And actually somebody wrote me because I, I posted some pictures another day of them. And somebody from Kentucky wrote me and said, yeah, they're here too. Um, but these stone walls were built by mostly between 1750 and 1850 by slaves and indigenous people to this land, right? Back-breaking, bone-breaking labor for free. And there's thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of them. And they're beautiful. They're, they're glorious. They're craftsmanship. They're very special. And so every time I'm here, I, I visit them, I take pictures of them, I try to find different ones. Some of them are hidden by vines, some of them are really exposed. Um, but, I don't th- but, you know, I started doing some research and very few sites talk about that. Who built them? They were started by the Irish, but then once slavery was here, then... So sometimes when I see them here... You know, and they, and they were usually boundary, you know, demarcations for farms. And um, when I see them here, I both love them and hate them. Yeah. Because when I see them here, I know where to go to feel my people. They were here on this land, in this soil, everywhere. And sometimes I just go touch them. I sit on them. I honor them. So if you go for a walk, check out the stone walls. And again, it's this feeling. It's just like, it doesn't feel, it, it doesn't make me sad. And I don't know why, you know, like it could, but there's something about it. Like there's this deep compassion for these people that lived here. 
And so I move out into, you know, so we looked at self-compassion. We looked at self-compassion for someone close to us. And then there's that greater, the greater world. How do we do that? And I hope it's okay to do this. You know, I know sometimes we're too tender to hear terrible things, but, you know, I just want to go down the list of what's happening. And I don't like to use the term right now because it's not right now. It's always. And if there's something I forget, I just want to, you know, it's just like say her name. I just want to say it. I just want to say it out loud. It's part of our practice. It's not different from our practice. It's compassion practice, right? The heart can hold it. The ego cannot. That might become, I might use that. I might make a bumper sticker. I don't know. The heart can hold it. The ego cannot. You don't need to do it alone. So the immigration policy, separating families, separating children, school shootings, toxic water supplies, land stealing from tribes for big oil, the school to prison pipeline, Me Too movement, say her name, white supremacy coming to the forefront, gender inequality, homo and transphobia, the climate destroying our planet, the rise in suicides, 55% in the last 20 years. Drug overdoses, the prison industrial complex, and now it's turning into the immigration industrial complex. I had to add our new, new Supreme Court justice because that's going to be what that is. So we go, right? So checking in now, you know, to this space. What is compassion? What is our practice? When we look at practice as wisdom, we know when to move in, when to move back. When to take care of ourselves.
compassionate action, sacred resistance. That's the practice. And I think one of the things that we as people of color know in a different way, you know, we do our individual work. We sit here on the cushion. It's important to do that. It's vital. But we're often doing it to take it out. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.